My biggest pet peeve right now is that people are calling this movie Tenant. Yes. Instead of Tenet. Yeah. It is the most annoying thing in the world. Like, <laughs> I've seen maybe two or three YouTube videos about people talking about this movie. And, like, either from the start or midway through, they start talking about this Tenant movie. Yeah. And it drives me bonkers. I mean, I get it. It's not a it's not a word that most people use in day-to-day conversation, but it's pretty obvious right there in the t- title. The whole point is that the title is supposed to be, like, reversible. Exactly. The other thing is, I... Like, I kind of went to see this tenant for this podcast. So if I somehow die, you can blame this podcast. <laughs> um, but I, like, I do agree with them. Like, there was a general sense of unease. I went to a an early afternoon matinee showing because I knew there wasn't going to be a lot of people. And I, I picked a seat that was closer off to the side. I, don't, I felt okay going in. But there are times in the movie where, you know, there are some parts where my mind kind of wandered off. (laughs) That was kind of the thought that I had about how we're like stuck in this like little Petri dish of an auditorium. I I mean, in my screening, it was, uh, they had assigned seating and you could only sit in these little uh, two seat pairs that were roped off. Me too. Um, And they kept like good distancing between all of those roped off pairs. But yeah, like uh, once the movie started, I, I pretty much lost myself in it. But in the run up to it, it was, you know, you're just kind of eyeing everyone, kind of listening <laughs> yeah. extra close to see if any anyone's coughing or whatever. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's not, um, it's not the kind of triumphant return to movie going that I think uh, maybe we hope no, for. No, no. Um, but I did feel comfortable enough to go to New Mutants the next day. <laughs> oh, okay. But I knew there was going to be even less people in my auditorium <laughs> for that one. So I felt a little safer, but. I like I'm totally with you. I really enjoyed actually watching a movie on a big screen again. And granted, you saw it on IMAX, but uh, just having like the big sound, yes, uh, and and the big screen is just there's no other experience like it, especially for a movie like this. So yeah, and we'll get into all that as well as the uh, some of the other movies that we watched, um, some good, some bad. <laughs> Once we come back from the break. Welcome to episode 81 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. This time on the show, we're devoting a big chunk to the one, the only, Tenet by Christopher Nolan. It's been on everyone's lips for months now, and both Jason and I have seen it, and we're going to get right into it. But we'll also touch on a couple of other new releases, uh, some of which are hitting theaters, others are kind of hitting VOD. We'll be talking about the much-delayed New Mutants, and Bill and Ted Face the Music. But let's get on to the the biggest uh, chunk of today's episode right out of the gate, uh, Tenet. So, uh, as you heard in the cold open just then, we both, uh, you know, took our sweet time, you know, planning out exactly how we're going to see this. I mean, here in Canada, it opened a bit early. I guess that's a bit of a, a gift for the people in this country who have done a better job of managing COVID-19, by and large. Um, but it's still, you know, you don't feel great about going to theaters, even when the case counts are low and people are sticking with their masks and everything. Um, but here it is, like, you know, it's been delayed to three or four times 
and it this was going to be everyone's big return to the movies. Uh, what was your what was your take on it? You know, uh, setting aside all of the all the other kind of stuff on the you know the industry stuff. <laughs> well, okay. For, first of all, we need to right off the bat. I got something that you didn't, and that was a teaser for Dune. Oh yes, you texted me about that, and I was very jealous. Yeah, so that's one of the drawbacks, I guess, to watching it on IMAX is that you don't get the some of the theatrical trailers. Yeah, yeah. Although although Christopher Nolan has like a tendency to put trailers dedicated for IMAX theaters, and I guess um, Dune is not one of those because it's not him. Just because we're both really big fans of the original, it was more of a teaser, so you get a lot of shots uh, of all the characters, interesting looks, interesting costumes, nothing too crazy uh the only scene you really get and there's a, like a whole voiceover narration which is i guess very like in tune with the old dune is the scene where paul Trady sticks his hand in this little box and they test his tolerance for pain and i believe that is like the impetus the moment he is believed to become the chosen one or they find out that he is the chosen one i think that's how it works yeah something like that it's uh, it's a trial that's conducted by the benny bene Gesserit witches and uh, it's it's pretty pretty kind of uh, dense mythology, but yeah, that makes sense that they would choose a scene like that because it doesn't give too much away, but it also sets up some of the plotting. Yeah, but no hints about the soundtrack, how it sounded. I, I believe most of it was silent. It was just the voiceover. Uh, you get a lot of uh, you know shots of Timothy Chalamet squinting or grunting because he's got his hand in that box um and it kind of i think sets the tone for tenet actually because tenet is a very serious film it is there's not a lot of jokes there's a maybe a few bits of banter but it's yeah it's pretty uh it's pretty cold and clinical i think cold and clinical is a very good way to describe christopher nolan's body of work in general yeah it's something that like uh uh like critics of his, like people who, who actually don't enjoy his. I've pointed this out before. True, too. yeah, but it, but it's something <laughs> that like people always return to whenever there's a new uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, the less so with Dunkirk, I suppose, because Dunkirk was telling a, a familiar historical uh, narrative. But I remember it uh, a lot of criticisms about it with Interstellar and with. Um, uh, inception to a degree like it it just that uh, people say he's not an emotional filmmaker or he doesn't know how to write emotional dialogue you know things like that and i mean i see where they're coming from i i you know the, the his movies are not very jokey you know there's no there's not like any kind of uh, like i'm saying other than a few lines here and there there's not a lot of banter between the characters but I don't know. It's kind of like for me. It's a, it's sort of like watching a Wes Anderson movie. You know what you're getting going into it, and it's how the filmmaker decides to to riff on their established style. So I don't I don't take points off necessarily for uh, the lack of emotion. Time travel. No. Inversion. Name it and pull the trigger. You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. Spoilers ahead, everyone. <laughs> yeah, big time. This is a hard movie to talk about without spoilers. I agree. Because even with if we, like, spoil certain things, I think it's still worthy, worth your time to go see it. Just because, like any other Christopher Nolan film, from a technical standpoint, it is brilliant. 
And you get that from the first scene. That first scene is a raid uh, slash special forces operation in this, uh, I believe it's a Russian opera house or is it Ukrainian? I think they shot it in Estonia, but I'm not sure if they intended to be actually Estonia itself or if it's another Eastern European country. But yeah, it's it's that kind of part of the world. Right, right. So um, anyway, very quickly, you're introduced the protagonist uh, who's played by John David Washington. And his name is actually the protagonist. We're not we're not like exactly. being too general here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think this is Christopher Nolan's way of like acknowledging that this is a very cold and calculated film where like the character names don't really matter. It's the concept that he's going for this idea of sort of time going back and forth. Yeah. Because it, it does play a central part to this protagonist's journey where it's sort of like the, the end is the beginning kind of deal. John David Washington's character sort of could stand in for anybody and it's he's supposed to be kind of like an archetype for how any person would be totally, you know, turned inside out by learning about this uh, time thing that this movie is about which we'll get into right so the movie starts off with this raid in this uh opera house um very quickly you realize though that certain things are different um there's bullets being fired forward and then there's bullets going back in time very soon after uh the operation goes awry he gets captured um he swallows what we believe and what he believes to be a suicide pill and then bam we get the title card tenant and then we kind of start going all over again. Two things I want to kind of point out in the opening sequence that kind of set the tone afterwards. Uh, first of all, again, I don't know if this is intentional or not. And a lot of people have mentioned this too before. But the sound mixing. with Because the characters are wearing some sort of like gas mask in, during the raid in the opera house. Some of the dialogue is completely unintelligible. It's kind of like Bane with that mask on. And I... I can't imagine what it was like in IMAX because he has a tendency to turn up the sound, like the background noise and the effects. Yes. But the dialogue is like a murmur. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, he's done it so many times now, both in like, yeah, certainly the Dark Knight Rises, but even in Interstellar, less so in, in Dunkirk. Um, but it's just like, it's his favorite way to mix sound. And I don't know, you know, it's not a mistake. People accused him of, of having sent a, uh, uh, yeah, it must be intentional. You know, and, and maybe the point is that like, you know, if you were in a real life scenario, like some of these things, you wouldn't be able to pick out everything that everybody is saying. And it's supposed to be kind of disorienting. So right. I guess that I guess maybe that's what he's going for. And and I even had the benefit of having seen this opening sequence before because oh, I had gone okay. to see a, a different uh, IMAX screening before the lockdown. And this whole chunk played as an extended uh, sneak peek. Oh, cool, cool. Um, like six or seven months ago. And it was almost the entire scene up until I think just before John David Washington's character is kidnapped by the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I got I got to see like eight or nine minutes of it. And it was just as good the second time around. Um, but you still have difficulty kind of making out what people are saying in, in that scene and some of the later ones. Yeah, yeah. And not that it like it's the most important thing, because a lot of people has, have said like this movie's confusing, blah, blah, blah. The general plot isn't confusing. Um, it's just little details here and there. And once you understand the concept of the movie and then you apply it to what's going on on the screen, that's when you get a little confused because you're not exactly sure what the rules of the universe are quite yet. And not until later on in the movie, at least. 
Uh, and that goes to my second point, and that's the technical expertise. All the pra- uh, effects in this movie, I believe, are practical. Yeah, I think, um, I can't remember if it was Nolan or somebody from his production team, but they essentially said that the they had fewer VFX, like digital VFX shots in this movie, than your average studio comedy these days. Yeah, which is nuts if you think about it. I think it was only a few hundred VFX shots, too. Yeah, whereas like, you know, you think about a, a big movie like Marvel. Infinity uh, War. Infinity War, where <laughs> if if not like 70 or 80% of the stuff is VFX, if not more, you know, so Uh literally thousands and thousands of shots. Uh Uh-huh, right, exactly. So right away, those two things kind of stand out and we we start getting the ball rolling. Um, You kind of mentioned this before, but Christopher Nolan, dialogue is equivalent to exposition for him. Mm -hmm. So there are sort of characters that kind of come in and out and all they do is basically they describe the rules of the universe. And so the basic plot is that the main villain is a Russian oligarch uh, played by Kenneth Branagh. And like, I don't know if he was miscast or something, but it's just it was kind of weird seeing him on the screen as a as a Russian oligarch. Yeah, he's played Russians before. Uh, He played a Russian oligarch in the Jack Ryan reboot with Chris Pine back in like 2014. I I still like I mentioned this in the review that's up on the site, but I, I can't really evaluate Russian accents. I don't know enough Russian people in real life. So I I don't really buy it. Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm too familiar with Kenneth Branagh's normal speaking voice, but it's yeah, and this is enough of a departure <laughs> yeah. or that he's got. Yeah. Or he, his most uh, famous accent now is Hercule Poirot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the Belgian detective where I look at him and I'm like, oh, that's not what you sound like, Hercule. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Kenneth Branagh plays this Russian oligarch, but uh, the prote- the protagonist doesn't meet him for a while into the movie. All the pro- all the protagonist knows is that uh, the government, the American government, has found out about this property called Inversion, and they've started to come across weapons, mostly like pistols and bits of debris uh, that have uh, reverse entropy. So. Things happen to them in reverse. So if you have a gun, you'll see the bullet get absorbed, like move backwards at the speed of uh, the speed of a bullet and then re-enter the gun. And yeah, it re-enters the barrel like you've never fired. Exactly. And of course, if somebody was standing in between where the bullet starts and the gun, they would still get hurt. And in fact, we see there's actually worse things that can happen to you because of the, you know, the timey-wimey Doctor Who-iness of it. Um, you know, <laughs> like you can get like, you, describe it. you can get like radio, like uh, radiation sickness if you get shot by something that uh, that has these properties. And the, the government officials explain to the protagonist that they're not so much worried about the pistols. They're worried that maybe there are nuclear weapons out there that have these inversion properties and that, you know, uh, if the the people from the future who who are creating these artifacts um, decide that they want to eliminate people in the past, we wouldn't have very much of a, a means of stopping it because we it hasn't happened yet, right? Right. It's got this like grandfather paradox thing where how you affect the 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 past may mean that you may not be born in the future kind of deal. Yeah. And so the general gist is that in the future the world is seemingly like on the verge of. Uh, an apocalypse or has had an apocalypse and uh somewhere someone in the future has uh discovered this inversion and keeps sending these things back in time for kenneth Branagh's character 
And what they're hoping to do is to collect these pieces. There's nine of them, I think, in total. And it forms this like nuclear weapon called the algorithm. And they're hoping that by using this weapon, they can you know, change the future for the better. And so basically this whole movie becomes sort of a spy thriller where J.D. Washington and Kenneth Branagh are sort of like on opposite ends and they're trying to figure out um, how to prevent um, him from getting this big weapon. Yeah, and then there's some confusing stuff, you know, where the relationship between Kenneth Branagh's character and his wife, Kat, played by Elizabeth Debicki, their relationship, their, their marriage is on the rocks and there's an implication that maybe... Uh, Kenneth Branagh's character wants to connect his own death to the ignition of the nuclear weapon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, ki- kind of live out his perfect day on Earth and then end it all. Yeah. And uh, his wife gets implicated in this. And then John David Washington's character uh, crosses paths with Kat and has to sort of get bring her in on the scheme, as well as a another agent uh, named Neil, played by Robert Pattinson, who's seemingly with like mi6 he's a he's a british agent of some kind but the you know this precise agencies and government organizations don't really matter in this it's just kind of like racing to save all of humanity yeah i think it's one of those like character minutiae doesn't really matter and that's kind of become a running theme with christopher nolan films where his characters tend to be a little flat um they tend to serve one purpose uh maybe two purpose purposes (laughs) 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 Purposei. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that couldn't be clear with Elizabeth Debicki, uh, who plays Kat. She's wonderful, by the way. So she was cast in this film based on her character in Widows, who kind of plays sort of like a damsel in distress, a, a woman who really finds inner strength throughout the film, but is very much defined by the character, the male characters around her. Um I thought she was good. I thought the character was kind of boring and flat. And this is a running theme throughout Nolan's films. But do you take points off that then for basically having really uh, weak female characters? Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to see a little bit more from her, like uh, maybe a bit more agency. But uh, I get that the, the whole point of her character is that she's supposed to be subservient and totally enthrall to uh Kenneth Branagh's character you know she's supposed to feel powerless she's not supposed to you know be able to get out out of that um but but yeah it's 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 nice you know comparing her against the character she played in Widows she played a much stronger character in Widows who had a bit more to do and the the arc was a little bit better defined Uh that was kind of the confusing bit I'm not exactly sure what uh Kenneth Branagh's character uh, who is called... Andre something. Andre? Yeah. Yeah, Andre. Like, what kind of hold he had on her? Other than the kid. Like, what else was that? Yeah, he had the he had the kid. He also had the fact that um, they had met because Kat was working as an art appraiser, and uh, Andre wanted to buy this um, Goya painting, or a Goya sketch, I think, and she appraised it for him at an auction house and confirmed that it was real. Although she knew going into this this appraisal, she knew that it was a fake. It was a very good fake, but it was actually one of two fakes created by a Spanish guy. And she sold it to Andre knowingly. And now he knows that if she were to try to break up with him, run away, take their son away, he would out her to the the authorities and basically, you know, get her locked up for a long time. Oh, uh, okay. 
Okay, that was a bit lost on me. So, so basically exposing her as a fraud, basically. Yeah, and t- like totally wrecking her life. And I think, um, you know, it's it uh, that aspect of it is brought up v- v- pretty much at the like the very beginning of John David Washington's um, exchanges with her. But it's kind of just a means to an end. Like it's just sort of the door opening, and then once she's in the story, then the stuff with the with the Goya sketches do- doesn't really come back into it. Yeah, because the the other thing at one point is that there's some sort of supposed relationship between protagonist and cat uh, because at one point he basically bargains her freedom in return for him finding the weapon for Andre, right? Yeah, there's there's a few kind of back and forths and it was easy to kind of get lost. I I didn't really <laughs> That's yeah, well, that's where the dialogue is just kind of like whatever, dude. Okay, yeah. she's kind of there to be saved and he's saving her and the bad guy doesn't want her to be saved. Okay, we get it. That's kind of like the thought process you have. Yeah, it's kind of one of those um yeah, it's a sort of a classic spy setup where the the villain has the the woman under his thumb and uses her as a bargaining chip and then she kind of trades hands back and forth and there's all this kind of bargaining over um who has her and this kind of thing and yeah. Um this this movie would definitely not win the Beck test <laughs> um i think there's only two female three female characters one cat to the scientist who like 90 percent of her scenes are in this trailer where she's explaining uh where you catch the bullet um and then the third one is the uh arms dealer yes yeah the indian arms dealer who uh uh, uses her husband as a front which is actually i guess we were talking about like which is clever i thought that was yeah really we were funny. talking about like female agency and she's probably like the strongest female in the in the, the story in the sense that she uses her husband everyone thinks that her husband is the arms dealer but it's actually her pulling the levers and uh, running running the show unfortunately she's only used for exposition <laughs> yes yeah she you know there's a bit at the end where we uh where suddenly she poses a bit more of a threat to the characters but it's uh more of like a loose end that gets uh wrapped up more than anything else right right her um we should mention that it's played by dimple capadia who apparently is a really famous uh, actress in in hindi films has a very lengthy filmography i I can't say i've seen any of her films but uh but uh christopher nolan does have that um sort of ability to bring in People, big names from all sorts of industries. You look back in Inception and you look at even the supporting cast and it's just like an A-list. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, people forget that Tom Hardy had actually had a small role in it, but by then he had basically was on his way to superstardom. But I got to say the most interesting character, and I think you'll agree with me, is Neil. Yes, I, you know, I know um, I've been a, a Robert Pattinson evangelist for several years now and people look at me like I'm crazy because they just only picture him in Twilight but the Batman ma- will change that though eh? yeah but if, I mean if people aren't convinced by Tenet Batman will do it uh, we've seen the tri- we've seen a in-production teaser for Batman now and it's clear that like the guy you know the guy's on on the cusp of winning back mainstream audiences who might have you know uh, written him off for for Twilight but he's been doing like nonstop, really interesting art house uh, movies for the past few years, and in this, he's just he's the perfect uh, complement to John David Washington. They, you know, admittedly they don't have a lot of banter scenes like we were talking about, but they they just work really well together as a team. And by the end of it, you get a revelation about their relationship, which is one of the more like you know. Uh, heartbreak. What the hell? It's what the hell, but it's also a little bit heartbreaking. It's the closest the movie gets to like real emotion, real like friendship mm-hmm. kind of vibes, and um, and it is a little bit sad. And uh, um, true. And uh, and you know, it's it's it does make you wish that you could see 
the rest of their their friendship. So I, I think that's that's partially the actors, but I think it's it's Nolan kind of giving us the tiniest glimpse into what his movie making would look like if he, you know, if he had a little bit more warmth in it. But he, you know, he's he's all about the concept. He's all about the premise. So I think he he's like he opens the door and then he shuts it again. <laughs> yeah. Of all the male sidekick characters that Nolan has introduced in his films, I think Neil is the best one. I think he is the most likable. I think he's the most charismatic. And I think he has a very interesting backstory. But as you said, Nolan's not very interested in those things. I'm sure he has an idea. I'm sure he has um, come up with this backstory for a lot of these characters. But in a lot of ways, I think Neil is much more human than than the protagonist. I think the protagonist is not saying jd washington didn't good job i thought he really did but as a character he's kind of he's kind of like a blank canvas right yeah totally and and he's supposed to guide the audience as he goes along because he's the guy who needs to have this tenet sort of uh philosophy and and all sorts of these things explained to him but we've managed to make it this far without really talking about uh what it's like to sort of sit there in the theater and try to follow all of the because so basically uh we were talking about the the inverted weapons and these things that sort of move in reverse but this can apply to people and to vehicles as well and the uh the means of actually becoming inverted is, a, is still a little bit vague, even by the end of the, the movie. We know that characters and items have to pass through what looks like this big kind of bank vault, rotating bank vault kind of door. It's a bit like a giant giant yeah. turnstile in like a subway or something. And uh, you pass through it and then immediately everything, physics, time is moving backwards. Characters can wa- can perceive that they're walking forward, but everyone who is not inverted will see them walking backwards. And this, you know, this is where Nolan gets to totally like that sentence already made my brain melt. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there's a scene. There's a pivotal scene. Pivotal scene where they actually like show it to you. So there's there's sort of two mirrored hallways. One's red light. One's blue light. And they're talking about like if you go through this thing and you come out the other side, you are inversion in inversion inverted yeah, i guess yeah um so they explain it and they do it but i gotta say that scene was so confusing to me yes i couldn't figure out if the red light was inversion or if the blue light was inversion and what exactly has changed um because they there's no like sort of time limit to this inversion this inversion timeline can go back to weeks years months apparently yeah and they like to in the climax of the movie they sort of use it to uh, rewind Elizabeth Debicki to a, uh, an important point of her marriage to Andre uh, so that she can be there and sort of influence events uh, before he does something bad. Meanwhile, there's this battle happening in Eastern Europe between uh, forces, uh, two two different color-coded forces belonging to the good guys. Um, they they seem to have unlimited money and unlimited people to uh, to uh, send on this battle. It's, it's it's still a little bit unclear where all these people come from. <laughs> they just pop out of crates like a video game, literally out of ship is shipping yeah. crates. It's it's a little bit weird. Uh, versus all of the mercenaries hired by Andre and and I guess the agents of the future, but we never meet any of those people. And they have this big battle, and they're racing to uh, either. Uh, set off a nuclear device or stop it from being set off and kind of recover other pieces of it and it just like you're you're seeing explosions go off and suck back into the ground you're seeing buildings uh, fall apart and then get put back together again and there are 
people with like blue coated uniforms and people with red coated uniforms and it's never entirely clear if we're supposed to be seeing people moving in reverse or moving forwards or whose whose perspective we're watching stuff from and i i like you know knowing nolan i give him the benefit of the doubt i imagine that he has a big like chart somewhere where it's all very clearly laid out and logical but it is not something that communicates very well on the first viewing no you probably have to watch this thing like three or four times to make true sense of it that's my big conspiracy theory is that nolan makes his movies unnecessarily complicated so you have to go back and watch it again yeah and just and i and honestly with if there was no covid i i'd watch this movie again in the theaters like uh without without second thought oh yeah me too yeah and so you're right on it though um it's unclear um, as to what or who is being affected and how. But at the same time, he introduces this, this time element where they only have 10 minutes uh, to complete the mission. So even though you, you don't know exactly what's going on in the screen, you know that both teams are racing against time. You do feel tense. You have that feeling of, oh my God, is this going to happen or not? Even though you don't even know what's supposed to happen, which I think goes to like the cleverness of of um nolan's filmmaking and also speaks to us as an audience where we don't necessarily have to know what's going on uh, but if we have something to tie ourselves to so like a ticking time bomb basically it's kind of like the alfred hitchcock like bomb on the table thing like it doesn't matter what it is or we don't even have to know what's going to happen but we just get tense because we know that something has to happen Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I remember being confused over whether they actually wanted the bomb to go off or not. And because they even talk about how Andre wants the bomb to go off. So I was like, wait, so is the bomb going to go off? And if it does, what does that mean? And never before in such a huge, like, it's, it's a different thing from Nolan in the sense that in all of his previous movies about time, like Memento, Inception, Interstellar, you know, you could wrap your head around the concept on the first viewing yep. pretty easily. And you could, you know, the the actual like A, B, C, D progression of what needed to happen was pretty clear. And then you got a little bit more out of it when you watched the movie a second or a third time. But in this time, it's, all, it's like um, you really don't know what any of it means. It's the closest to like David Lynch that Christopher Nolan has ever been. Mm, and okay. As a David Lynch fan, I I like I kind of like that. It's uh, he's definitely not doing the same old thing. The question is whether you, as a viewer, have the patience to put those extra screenings in. Because I know a lot of viewers are just gonna throw their hands up at this and just be like, "Screw it, I don't I don't have enough." It's time not for that this. hard to understand though, like the general plot though, right? It's just when you actually try and really think about what's going on, about the physics of physics of it that you start to lose yourself yeah i think like if you go in you're kind of like all right i'm just gonna let this movie wash over me i think it's a you'll have a really good time because it actually is quite a very um good film in general there are minor nitpicks here and there not unlike any other movie or chris nolan movie but i do want to i do have one question because this part confused the hell out of me okay so spoiler alert and this is like deep spoiler so when they're they go underground where supposedly the algorithm is hidden, right? And so there's this Andre's agents on the other side. He's kind of locked behind this fence. And Neil and uh, I th- was Neil there? Oh, anyway, JD Washington. Was- yes. Well, we we find out later. Yeah, that exactly. So JD Washington's like, damn, like this fence is locked. I can't get through to him. We're gonna lose. The bomb's gonna go off. 
And then all of a sudden, like, the, he comes to the realization that the person, there's a, a, a dead soldier on the ground. He comes to the realization that this soldier is Neil. And Neil, uh, and when the the bad guy reaches for a gun and shoots John David Washington, the, the body kind of comes back to life, jumps up, and takes the bullet for J.D. Washington. Yes. Meaning that he had sacrificed himself to so J.D. Washington could do his job. I didn't understand. So, like... If Neil dies at that moment, how is he alive for the rest of the movie? So basically, Neil had inverted himself a couple. He had inverted and uninverted himself a couple of times over the course of the battle because he was trying to get ahead of uh, the protagonist and help him out. And sort of he saw that that um, the protagonist was going to get sealed in that tunnel. So he was trying. He uninverted himself so that he could drive this Humvee across the battlefield and try to... When did he uninvert himself? Um, you see him... When is it? He goes... He finds an inversion machine in the base somewhere. And he... Oh, he actually goes through it? Yeah. I didn't even... I don't even remember that. Yeah, it was very brief. Like, he goes in, he uninverts himself, um, comes back... I think he, he, he basically tails some bad guys into where there's an inversion machine and uninverts himself because he starts the battle inverted. Yeah. And uninverts himself and goes up to the surface, finds the Humvee, tries to warn uh, the protagonist that he's about to get sealed in the tunnel. But that doesn't work. So then he re- he realizes that he's going to have to um, invert himself again in order to, uh, and go down into where the protagonist is and allow himself to get shot so that... Uh, and it's it's only through inversion that he can get there ahead of time, get shot at the right point, and then when everything is okay and we're at like the the climax is over, we're still seeing him before he gets shot in his personal timeline. I think that's what's happening. <laughs> See, just even thinking about what you said makes me like. It makes sense to me. Yeah, like I, I think, but I'm you, just like I'm. I'm still like surprised how he's alive at the at the beginning during the movie and after the battle, and how he knows that him and JD Washington are gonna have this like wonderful partnership that results in him taking a bullet for him for JD Washington. Yeah, because um, everything that happens, it, everything that happens before the battle, it's real time, right? We're we're going forwards in time, right? Yeah, because when the protagonist first first meets up with Neil, Neil already knows about the the what's going to happen because he's in a different time stream. Right. So he yeah he, he pretends like the protagonist is he recruit- pretends to not know anything. Yeah, right. The prote- he pretends that the protagonist is recruiting him for the first time, but he's totally aware of everything that the protagonist is about to tell him, and he just car- carries on because he knows that if he tells the protagonist what he knows, that it will change the future. So it is very so we're seeing them, but then they they both move in the same direction going forward. They both end up at the battle, but um, it's through those inversions that Neil does right towards the end that make it possible for him to get to the uh, the guy, the the mercenary guy in the pit. My, ahead of my time. mind just melted again. <laughs> so as but as the protagonist continues forward after the events of the movie. He will eventually meet up with Neil again, but it'll be a version of Neil who doesn't know anything about the inversion stuff. And so he'll be he'll be recruiting Neil for real at that point. 
because the protagonist will have the benefit of everything he just learned in the battle scene. Okay, let's do this chronologically. Okay, so let's say after the events, J.D. Washington basically goes on to to um, establish Tenet, the, the organizations organization that like does all this. Yeah, stuff, he's right? the expert. He knows everything. Yeah, yeah. He ends up being actually the guy who sets all these things in motion. So in the future, after the events of Andre, he meets Neil. Him and Neil work together, and somehow the world goes to shit. So he sends Neil back in time to help him, basically. Yes. Okay. Yes. To a time where J.D. Washington doesn't know anything. And Neil is forced to let basically let the events play out as he knew it would. Um, but given giving J.D. Washington uh, this path of self-discovery. Yes. Yeah. So it uh, there's a bit of like the butterfly effect kind of thing there where Neil, okay. Neil Neil's kind of making kind of educated guesses, hoping that he doesn't affect the wrong things that would mess up the time stream. But I always thought that because he was shot and died in the mine, that his future self wouldn't exist then. Because isn't that what they talk about with the grandfather par- uh, paradox? No, because that that is like the the end of his time stream. He is he's moving in reverse at that point. So he that is just the end of his life. And everything that he did before getting shot still happened. <laughs> because of inversion. <laughs> Basically well, here's here's another way of thinking about it. Uh, this is actually where uh the show Doctor Who did a slightly better job okay. of a kind of Teach making me. this understandable. Um in Doctor Who, the doctor in, uh encounters this character named River Song and when he meets her, she's just about to die, but she seems to know him already. And she hints that they've had a whole life together. They were uh, really good friends. They might have even had a romance. And he, but then she dies and he's like, okay, well, what does this mean? Like, you know, how could we have known each other? And by uh, what he finds out as he moves forward in time is that he keeps meeting River Song at other points in her time stream. And they're just going in opposite directions. So eventually they'll get to a point where the doctor is meeting her for the first time for her. Okay. And any and then after if he were to meet her at any other point after that, she wouldn't know him. So they're basically they're like ships passing in the night essentially and there's a certain number of times that they meet up where they actually know each other, but they're having different versions of those experiences because one of them is getting to know the person better and the other person already knows everything. Mm, okay. So I, I feel like uh, we've like seen this before in other movies too, right? But it, it's, it's just always like a mind fuck because there's so many implications about who does what first and who knows yeah. what. And I mean, I think ultimately it is like pretty cyclical and, you know, I don't think there's any right or wrong answers ultimately because so much of it happens. Time is a flat yeah, circle. Yeah, so much Robin. of it happens off off screen that you could kind of like make up your own explanation, and maybe that's the fun of it. I don't know, but uh, uh-huh. I can see I can see certain viewers out there just getting totally frustrated and not wanting to have anything to do with this movie. But uh, I I happen to really enjoy this stuff. Like I, I I've liked it in other movies, other TV shows, certainly other times that Nolan has kind of looked at it admittedly in like different formats. And I don't know, I, I'm uh, as soon as it's available digitally, I can't wait to kind of go through it again and uh, see if see if it actually like holds up the more I know about it. Yeah, I, I agree. I can't wait to watch this again just to 
if not only just to nitpick certain things, especially in the car chase on the highway, uh, how, how some things are moving forwards and some things are moving backwards. Um, just little things like that. Um, but uh, like, I remember asking you and you said you gave this movie basically four and a half stars out of five. And in classic like fashion, I came in a half star below you. Yeah, yeah. Basically, my main gripes being like, again, um, the sound mixing was a little off. The characters, the, the story, uh, the dialogue didn't quite live up to some of his other films, I feel like. Um, but where would you rank this in terms of Nolan's films? Like, if you give it four and a half out of five, you must think this is one of his best movies. Top three, maybe? Uh, it's hard because I think um, I'm giving it four and a half out of five as like, you know, more as like its success amongst other movies of that genre. Okay. Um, but not so much like an internal ranking of just Nolan movies. I think it might go maybe a few steps down, like maybe yeah. three or four out of however many, like if he's, he's got what, like uh 10 or 11 features. Um, so yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I'd put it at like maybe three or four from the top. Um, because I, I'd probably put movies like, I think Dunkirk is number one, hands down. Yeah. I think it's, it's from a storytelling point of view, from a yeah. technical point of view. I think Dunkirk is, I think it's just so neatly wrapped up together. Whereas a lot of his other films, especially ones that deal with time, he, he there's some loose strings that he kind of leaves hanging. And I don't think he bothers to tie him and it's probably intentional. Yeah. But as an overall experience, I think Dunkirk is the West, the most like complete sort of uh, feature. Yes, I do. I do really like Dunkirk. I think it would, it would kind of swap between first and second with interstellar for me because i really like interstellar um yeah me too i i also really like the prestige and inception so it's yeah uh i would i would put this ahead of the batman movies be uh as good as those are um but yeah i can't put it like super close to the top it's it's kind of like uh you know just in that in that territory yeah Um, and nolan's got this weird progression where like the more movies he makes the more complicated (laughs) He yes. makes them. And I'm wondering like what his next project is going to be. Is it going to be like time aversion plus upside down? Because he, <laughs> he, he'll sort of like build things on his previous films, right? Yes. So he'll he'll build like a rig for Inception where like things rotate. And then he'll he'll use that in Interstellar with the space thing. And then with the time thing Interstellar, he'll, he'll do that with Tenet. So I wonder like what sort of crazy ass concept he's going to come up with next. I don't know if you ever want to do drugs with him, but he's going to go so deep down a rabbit hole that you're you're just going to be like, wow, this this guy's uh, either a psycho or a genius. <laughs> I think that's the name of the episode right there. <laughs> psycho or a genius. All right. Well, uh, the, so Tenet is not the the only new movie uh, out there right now. There uh, there are a couple of others that are kind of. Um, looking for the the leftover uh ticket revenue or vod <laughs> yeah. revenue uh that um that tenet doesn't scoop up uh so you saw new mutants which is the uh sort of like tenet in the sense that it moved release dates a whole lot but for it, three years it uh, did, yeah <laughs> but yeah for over a much longer period of time and there were conspiracy theories abounding like does this movie really exist what format is it going to be in when it is finally released it's going to be cut to death um I haven't seen this yet, but I was rooting for it the whole time because I was I was excited to see what like this is in the X Men universe. It's a it's kind of like a, a horror uh, remix of X Men First Class in the sense that you've got young people, young mutants with powers 
who um, are trying to sort of stay alive and solve a mystery. This isn't a hospital, it's a cage. It's important we find out your power so we can help you get better. I saw something. I don't think she wanted me to see. It doesn't sound like after all of the, the back and forth and the arguing about this that it actually turned out to be a good movie. <laughs> it's not a good movie. Um, let's just get out of the way. But it's also not a bad movie. Okay. Which I think is a is sort of a testament of its own because usually films that go through such a lengthy post-production process usually end up being really, really terrible. Um, just because it's it's changed hands too many times. Yeah. Um, this was one of the casualties of the Disney deal when they bought 20th Century Fox. And so the two studios, obviously, from reports, from what I gather, had different ideas about what to do with this film. Um, when it was first sort of conceived, sort of a new franchise, a, a new chapter in the X-Men universe, in the same vein as Deadpool with the R-rated stuff, Logan with the you know West or the uh, Western drama heavy stuff, it wanted to have a different tone. It didn't want to be like a big budget good versus evil blockbuster. So, the New Mutants is set in the X Men universe, and it features five teenagers who are um, stuck in this. Wait, are there five? Yeah, five. <laughs> <laughs> Five teenagers who are stuck in this abandoned hospital run by this weird doctor, mysterious doctor. And pretty soon they realize they're being basically experimented on because they're mutants and they're in, it's a hospital, but it's really more like a prison. And one of the new characters, uh, the main character, Danny Moonstar, has this ability to um, basically discover the fears of other people and sort of make them uh, visualize it, sort of manifest the, uh, manifest it and um, sort of like... Um, Scarecrow? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Different uh, comic universe, but yeah, same basic thing. <laughs> yeah, same basic thing. So what you get is this movie that doesn't really have an antagonist because the antagonist is like sort of the fear itself kind of deal. Um, so there's no real big bad guy, although they tease someone much bigger, uh, Mr. Sinister, who is like, you know, beyond. But it's never going to happen because this franchise is going nowhere. These five characters are stuck in this creepy hospital their fears are manifested there's creepy gangly sort of alien creatures that look like the uh the monster from pan's labyrinth oh yeah the man with no eyes i think it's called yeah or no face or something no I... face something like that and then there's this like big mystical giant bear that manifests itself and it's one of those films where like you could see the elements there's you know dark hallways these creepy aliens jump scaring you there's a girl in a pool who's like maybe a witch and you know you know is the seductress and 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 uh sort of seduces the male male character and then forces him to do something terrible kind of deal uh the problem is that one it's very flat um two there's too many characters to go over so even though there is a main character they try to devote enough time to five 
all five of them. And it ends up just being like a bunch of boring backstory. You know, oh, I was ostracized. Oh, I did this. I did that. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. At one point, they even like go to an attic where they think is a safe space. And they play a game. And you think you're like, oh, okay, well, this will be fine. Maybe they play a board game or they, you know, use their powers for fun. But no, they hook themselves up to a lie detector test and ask each other personal questions. Uh. I'm like, wow, that is like the most gimmicky, the most cheap way to just you know, unearth dark secrets about each character. It's neither funny nor touching. There's a bit of a LGBTQ uh, love story in there that I felt a little shoehorned, but yay representation, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, the special effects are actually okay. Um, you'd think so after three years of production. Yes. The the powers, say, for example, um, Charlie Heaton, he's in it. He plays Sam Guthrie, whose who's, uh, powers ability to just go very fast at insane speeds and propels himself into the air. Um, some of the special effects are kind of sort of, I think, B-film, um, kind of not unlike um, the Umbrella Academy. It has a bit of a that vibe to it. And unfortunately, it doesn't all quite come together. I thought the performances were good, especially Anya Taylor Joy, who plays yes. uh, this this Russian girl who's who's like basically a sorceress. Um, She's my one of my favorite up and comers right now. Okay, well, I mean, if you ever get the chance and you don't have to pay money, you can watch her in this. <laughs> I think she was quite good. Um, I think her Russian accent is slightly better than Kenneth Branagh's, but again, Ooh, I can't really shots fired. I can't really tell, really. Um, in in sort of uh, the X-Men lore, she plays the sister of Colossus, which is the guy who turns metal. And so, I mean, props to Disney and Fox for producing a movie that's watchable. but And I think that's a feat of itself. So I hesitate to give it a bad score um, just because knowing what it took to actually release this film... Um, but you get the sense that even at its peak, um, it probably wouldn't have been very good. Maybe like a six or seven out of 10, kind of like that. Okay. Yeah. Cause of, you know, I, I remember reading, I think it was like a Twitter exchange or something where the, the director whose, whose name escapes me right now. Um, Josh Boone. Yeah. Josh Boone. He was asked, you know, is the cut that Disney is going to release whenever they release it? Is that your cut, you know, or did they mess with it? And he said, no, there was some back and forth about it. And it is my cut, he said. So, yeah. you yeah. know, as far as as far as, as much as he's willing to talk openly online, you know, knowing that Disney might come down on his head later on, I guess he he, he assured people that this is the, the movie that he wanted to make. So, you know, he he got some, you know, there was that helped people uh, help people feel better, I think, when he said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like like anything, you can try your hardest and sometimes it just doesn't all come together. And uh, all the X-Men films have this problem where like at the end, somehow something happens and the protagonist is able to defeat the the enemy, you know, like it's sort of like the timing is perfect, sort of uh, short run time, though. So you don't have to spend too much time waiting for that to happen. But speaking of time, a blast from the past. You saw Bill and Ted. Yeah, Bill and Ted face the music. So uh, this is the the third in the Bill and Ted series, uh, a long time in the works. The first Bill and Ted came out in 1989, the second one in 1991. And have you seen those? I have seen those. Yeah, I saw the first one ages ago. I want to say like more than five years ago. Might have even been on TV 
is when I watched it. It's still it. funny. It's still really funny. And then uh, you have uh, Bill and Ted played by Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. They play not really stoners, more just kind of uh, heavy metal dudes. <laughs> they're airheads. Airheads who, you know, they, they're not really, they're also not surfers, even though their their accent kind of sounds like your stereotypical surfer dude. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they are, they're visited by a, a guy from the future played by George Carlin who gives them this phone booth that can travel through time. And they end up using it to... Uh, ace their history presentation at uh, high school because they were flunking out before the uh, before George Carlin shows up and they go through time and they they sort of you know in a in a very uh, after school special kind of way they uh, capture historical figures like Napoleon and Freud and bring them back to the the school for a presentation and they then in the second one instead of being like a time travel one we've got uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And they uh, they don't travel through time. They kind of travel between heaven and hell. And they're facing off against a uh, robotic duplicates of them that were sent from the future by uh, an evil guy in the future who's uh, annoyed by how big of an impact they've had on uh, society 600 years on. So they end up going to down to hell. They make friends with the Grim Reaper, played by William Sadler. Then they go up to heaven and they re- recruit uh, these like Martian scientists to build uh, good robot duplicates to fight the evil robot duplicates. <laughs> and uh, basically the, the thing that most people kind of agreed upon with the two Bill and Ted movies was that uh, they were kind of shambolic, you know, they the logic in the individual scripts didn't really make any sense the more you think think about it. But that was not the point. You were just supposed to enjoy Bill and Ted, you know, Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves doing their, these, playing these characters. Iron Maiden? Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, they, you know, so 25 years pass and I, I don't think there was a huge crowd of people calling out for a sequel online, but I think Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves figured, you know, there's a lot of other pop culture things from the 80s and 90s that are getting uh, not quite remakes, but sort of spiritual sequels or, or continuations. And I guess they were able to get the financing together and they decided to, you know, make a new Bill and Ted movie, but focusing, of course, on what their lives are like 25 years after the end of Bogus Journey. A song created by Preston Logan performed tonight will save reality as we know it oh dude we better write that song now or why can't we just go to the future when we have written it and take it from ourselves except won't that be stealing cheers (laughs) how is that stealing if we're stealing it from ourselves dude that's where we are um it's it's actually a lot of fun it brought a smile to my face yeah um, I, I will I will quote uh, Red Letter Media, one of my new favorite uh, YouTube channels. Uh, they've been around forever, but I've been on a quarantine binge of their stuff recently. Uh, they didn't completely fuck it up, <laughs> and that's that's actually like a, a a hard bar to clear sometimes when uh, people come back and try to reboot or revitalize an old franchise that has a lot of a uh, lot of like uh, cult classic uh, vibes. And this in this movie, you've got Bill and Ted, who at the end of uh, Bogus Journey back in 1991, they had become overnight rock sensations. They had uh, successfully defeated their evil robot duplicates, and then they'd use the time traveling booth to uh, spend 18 months becoming the best musicians in the world. And they were told by people from the future that they were supposed to have written us the, the one song that would unite the world. 
And at the end, you know, over over the end credits of Bogus Journey, we see all these newspaper clippings that suggest that they had this amazing career. They started touring with Death, who became the the bassist in their band, the Wild Stallions, spelled with Ys, and they and played the Grand Canyon and they played the Middle East and they achieved uh, peace in the Middle East just by playing their songs. And you see all these like sort of uh, over the top headlines. But then when we when the action picks up in this third movie. It seems like all of that has sort of uh, plummeted on them, and they have that they're no longer packing auditoriums. They can barely get forty people out to uh, a show that they play at a local bar, and their wives, who are actually princesses that they kidnap from medieval England, <laughs> who are living very comfortably in twenty uh, first century California. Yep, I remember uh, that. Their their wives are sort of the providers, and uh, both Bill and Ted each have a daughter. Uh, who are also named Bill and Ted, sort of like nicknames. Um, Bill's daughter, uh, who's uh, played by Samara Weaving, uh, and Ted's daughter, played by uh, Brigitte somebody. Lundy Payne. Brigitte Lundy Payne. Um, and both uh, little Bill and little Ted are have become sort of carbon copies, female carbon copies of their dads. And they're both, they've kind of adopted this sort of, like, hey man, kind of way of talking. They're both really into music and... All throughout this movie, it's just very, like, for a, a dark time in society, this is a small bright light, I would say. You know, the people are just so optimistic in these movies. Nothing, no insult or bad situation ever gets them down. They get kicked back down to hell, and they're just like, oh, we're in hell. Okay. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's, you know, it's just a totally irrepressible optimism, and I kind of love it. Yeah, there's a kind of... Um sort of happy-go-lucky attitude that you don't see in these because the first two films are kind of like teen films where uh, they're trying to survive school and growing up, right? Yeah, although you barely even see like uh, anything bad happen to them at school. Like you don't see them get bullied. Well, they're going to fail, right? Yeah, that's about the worst thing that happens to them. But you don't see them really dealing with your average high school problems. Right, right. Fair enough. But just the fact that it's kind of about two teens just basically a coming of age story right yeah exactly and uh, and then by the time bogus journey rolls around they've sort of moved out into their own apartment but of course they do every they do everything together um they there's so they replicate that in uh, bill and ted face the music by having the bill and ted go to uh, couples therapy but they're unable to even go to couples therapy just with their each of their individual wives they have to do it as a foursome right and so when when they say they don't fuck it up does that mean like by itself is not that enjoyable. It's enjoyable because you get to see Bill and Ted, but it's not enjoyable because the movie itself isn't that great. Well, there's a sense where you're basically getting that kind of greatest hits vibe where you're getting a mixture of uh, recognizable stuff from each of the two existing movies uh, put into a different context here with the addition of some uh, fan favorite characters. You know, you see Death come back, played by William Sadler. Uh, and then you have the addition of the, their two daughters who sort of go on their own little adventure in, in time, uh, which is, and their arc is basically the arc for, of Bill and Ted from the first one because they're traveling around. They're trying to uh, recruit um, famous musicians to bring back to their timeline so that they can help Bill and Ted write this song that's going to unite the world finally. And um, meanwhile, Bill and Ted are, they, in their classic slacker style, they don't want to actually try to write the song that is going to unite the world. They 
they want to steal it from their future selves. So they keep they go on this uh, sort of misadventure trying to go forwards in time to meet up with future versions of themselves. And the further they go in time, the less time they're actually spending writing the song and the more of a screw up the future Bill and Ted's become. So they go from being like uh, playing even worse venues at like a, uh, a, a motel somewhere to the, uh, being uh, squatters at Dave Grohl's house uh, to being locked up in prison. And they, the future Bill and Ted's keep saying, oh man, you guys just suck. You know, you're, uh, the more you do this, the, uh, uh, the, the more likely it is that our wives are gonna, uh, never going to come back to us. And that just freaks out present day Bill and Ted even more and makes them even less likely to try to write the song and more likely to try to skip ahead to wherever the the song has been written. So uh, that's kind of the ticking clock of the movie. Um, And then in the meantime, we do get a few glimpses of stuff happening in the future where the, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the longer that they put off writing this unifying song, uh, the more of the time stream gets screwed up. So you start seeing historical figures getting sucked out of their proper times and getting plopped down all over the place. So, uh, you know, George Washington gets sucked out of the the boat going across the Delaware and uh, Jesus gets sucked out of the Last Supper and uh, he ends up, you know, getting relocated somewhere else. And so they finally all the characters have to come together for this great big concert on the freeway in California to fix everything. And it's kind of got that Brian Wilson recording pet sounds sort of thing where there's so many different styles of music and genres getting woven into this one big song, this one epic thing. Uh, you've got Jimi Hendrix rocking out and you've got Mozart in there and you've got some uh, futuristic uh, Asian flautist from the 24th century in there. And uh, the songs are actually, you know, they're, they're pretty decent. They must have gotten somebody who actually knows what they're doing to to compose these things. Uh, but honestly, it's just a uh, the whole experience of watching the movie is uh, is call outs, you know, to familiar stuff, um, enjoying Samara Weaving and Bridgette Lundy Payne's interpretations of uh, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves mannerisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, for anybody who uh, I had recently watched Bogus Journey in preparation for this. So it was fresh in my mind. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, more Bill and Ted. Let's go. <laughs> Um, final thoughts, final score. Uh, I would give it like three and a half out of five. So, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't improve on the, uh, uh, the two existing movies in the way that Bogus Journey did. Cause Bogus Journey is probably, even though it's the second one, it's probably the best of the series. What is it? I, uh, I would say so. I would say so. I think, I think, I think Bill and Ted's excellent adventure was way better. No, I, I like Bogus Journey more. I think there's, there's more going on in it. They had a bigger production budget. Um, and you have death in there. Death is hilarious. <laughs> That's true. It's the wild stallions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think the the first one just was a little more fresh, and I kind of like the historical aspect of it. Um, okay. Yeah. The, the Bill and Ted, where it kind of lost me is the the robots. Oh. Where they kind of clone themselves. Yeah, there's the, that's that's probably the the cheesiest part. Um, they, they even sort of get a redo with the robots in Face the Music because the people from the future get fed up of waiting uh, for the song to be written. So they send another futuristic robot back to try to kill Bill and Ted for some reason, which again, like (laughs) in classic Bill and Ted logic makes no sense. Really? The more you think about it. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the, a lot of the movie does kind of show signs of its lower production budget. Um, Bill and Ted movies have never been super glitzy looking, but this one was very clearly a lot of it was done on a big green screen studio. And the, the backgrounds look a little bit kind of, 
you know, they're uh, as again on uh, Red Letter Media was pointing out, like they're very well rendered. They look more photorealistic than what we saw in the older movies. But right. the the characters kind of look like they're hovering in the middle of it. You know, they it, there's not enough kind of practical kind of grounding of in the in the camera work to make you believe that they're really there. I think that's part of the charm, though, because on a twenty five million dollar budget, it's not small, but. It's it's not it's not something you can work with a lot if you're involving all sorts of time travel and and big names and and multiple sets and whatnot. Yeah, it would have been tough to pull off uh, for real and not spend like at least seventy five or hundred million. So uh, you know if you if you think back on the old movies fondly and you want to revisit them, I think it's uh, you know it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't feel cheesy. It doesn't feel like a cash grab. It feels like it was very earnestly made, which is good. Uh, even though it's not the freshest of the of the bunch, um, it's it's a lot more fun than some of the other direct to streaming stuff that we've seen the past few months. So I, I kind of I, I give it a few extra points just for that. Okay, hmm, sounds good. But yeah, definitely recommend Tenet. Um, not so much of a recommendation for New Mutants. Maybe wait a little bit longer until it hits yeah. streaming on that. Uh, Bill and Ted, you could either see it in the theater or you could see it in VOD. It's up to you. Uh, it's nice to be talking about some new, new movies again. Agreed. Uh, as long as we, Agreed. We, we we all do it in a safe way. But head on over to kinetoscope.ca where we have uh, my review of Tenet. I'll probably have a review of Bill and Ted Face the Music and maybe New Mutants in the near future. But probably by the time this episode is live. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.